If I were to go to Chicago or zoom into Chicago and say, okay, raise your hand, your blue hand on the Zoom screen, if you think race is a social construct, I bet almost everyone gives me a blue hand. If I say, what does that mean? The hands are going to drop really quickly. Eyes are going to avert. And all and few people are going to engage because the move or the ability to say, yes, it's a cultural social construct is very different from being able to unpack what we mean. Hello, this is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your co-host, Deb Malamud. And I'm Adam Hossman. Over the past several decades, the concept of law and economics has dominated multiple spheres of both legal academia and education. But in recent years, challenges to this norm have been launched by advocates in a developing school of thought, critical race theory. These advocates claim both that law and economics adopts too mechanical of an approach to legal analysis and that many legal disciplines ignore the consequences and importance of race. Recently, critical race theory has come under fire by the Trump administration and the director of the Office of Management and Budget, Russell Bott, who called the discipline divisive and anti-American propaganda. Today's podcast dives into the heart of the academic debate between critical race theory and law and economics, uncovering their differences and perhaps surprisingly, their commonalities. William H.J. Hubbard is a professor at the University of Chicago Law School, as well as an alumnus. He serves as an editor of the Journal of Legal Studies and is a board member of the American Law and Economics Association. Jonathan Feingold is a professor at the Boston University School of Law. His recent scholarship focuses on the relationship between American legal regimes like equal protection doctrine and race. He is the co-founder of Illuminate Diversity Consulting, a private firm seeking to foster inclusion through data-driven conversations. Thank you, Professor Hubbard, and thank you, Professor Feingold, for joining us today. Oh, well, it's, it's great to be a part of this podcast, and, and thank you for including me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And with that, we'll jump into our first question. So, Professor Hubbard, the phrase law and economics is commonplace in legal education generally. And at a distance, it seems like it's a marriage between two distinct concepts, but in actuality, it's yielded swaths of scholarship. Could you shed some light on the relationship that the phrase is actually describing? That's a great question, because what exactly is law and economics is something that's been the subject of ongoing debate and controversy, even among people who call themselves law and economics scholars. In fact, if you go back to Judge Richard Posner's classic text on law and economics, he didn't call it law and economics. He called it economic analysis of law, and that was a very deliberate choice on his part because he wasn't sure what law and economics even meant when people used the terms. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to say something about, <laughs> about what, uh, uh, what we mean when we, when we talk about law and economics. The, the basic idea of law and economics, I think, is to take the tools that economists have developed for studying the world, for looking at how society behaves, how people respond to the incentives that they face in their economic life, in their social life, in their political life, and use those tools to help understand how the legal system works, uh, what effects law has on uh, the behavior of people in, in society, and, and so on. And how would you say those ideas and concepts translate into law and economic scholarship? And what does that scholarship look like? Law and economics has both a, a theoretical component and an empirical component. A lot of the early work in law and economics really was 
taking ideas from economic theory and applying those ideas in the context of uh, the legal system and legal rules. More recently, a lot of scholarship in law and economics has been more focused on empirical work to take data about the world and help use that data to reveal uh, facts about, about the legal system, reveal how the laws um, affect the world um, in a way that's grounded in data that we have about, about what's happening in the world. But usually when people talk about law and economics, the context is often the theoretical side of, of law and economics, beginning with some basic uh, theoretical approaches that economists bring to studying the world, such as saying people respond to incentives in predictable ways. The cost of something rises, people are going to consume less of it. Now, the, the traditional economic context is in, is in markets where people are buying and selling uh, products. And it's easy to say, well, if the, if the price of Cheerios goes up, people are going to, to buy fewer boxes of Cheerios. That's, that's the law of demand, as economists like to say. The intellectual move that law and economics made in studying the law was to apply principles like the law of demand in the context of laws and regulations and how judges behave and things like that to say that, well, if the law increases the amount of damages awarded to plaintiffs who suffer injuries in, let's say, chemical spills from violations of environmental regulations, well, the predictable response is going to be um, less activity in the chemical industry. And when that activity occurs, greater safety precautions in the use of, uh, of chemicals, for example. That's just uh, one of many examples you could come up with. So the approach that the law and economics has taken is to ask, how do the incentives created by the law affect people's behavior, whether it's the behavior of uh, people out in the world who are simply uh, going about their business, but they're mindful of the fact that legal liability affects their, the choices that they make. They want to avoid legal liability. They want to avoid uh, criminal uh, prosecution and so on. Uh, but also actors within the legal system to say, well, how do judges decide cases? Are they influenced by factors that influence everyone else? Are judges not merely automatons who look up some answer in the law books and apply the answer to the case at hand, but instead are they influenced by the same incentives that everyone else faces, the desire to get their work done faster so they have more free time, the desire to gain more prestige, for example, things that other people care about that create incentives for their behavior. How do those incentives affect people like lawyers and judges within the legal system? What are we seeing as the goal of law and economics scholars? Is it more of a, a normative discussion about how laws ought to be shaped to focus and fixate on incentives to change behavior? Or are we seeing more of a descriptive approach to say what the law does in the status quo? The answer to your question is yes. Yes, both. One of the real challenges in law and economics and one of the real challenges to law and economics has been this question of what exactly is law and economics doing? Is it describing how the world works or is it actually promoting a vision, 
a particular viewpoint about how the world should work. And I think in this respect, law and economics at different points in history and as uh, as pursued by different scholars has done a mix of both of these things. It's been both a descriptive exercise of saying, well, let's just understand how the world works. We're going to make predictions about how people's behavior will change in response to incentives. But it's also been a normative enterprise saying, look, if we want to make the law better, this is what the law should say. This is how the law should change. And that's by no means a purely dispassionate uh, scientific exercise. Uh, you know, there's an element of normativity. There's even an element, one might say, of ideology uh, in that decision to say the law should be one thing rather than uh, rather than something else. And and law and economics has, since the very beginning, been very willing to make claims about what the law should be, not just describing how the law works or how people respond to incentives created by laws. Okay, you've very helpfully gone over the basics of law and economics and some of the purposes of the discipline. Could you possibly go over some of the phraseology? Are there any terms that our listeners need to know about in better understanding law and economics? So one of the terms that inevitably crops up in any discussion of law and economics is efficiency. Economists love to talk about economic efficiency, and it's one of these words that's kind of a slippery term because it's a word that everyone's encountered in their everyday life. But when economists use the word efficiency, they mean something very specific that isn't quite the same thing as what judges or lawyers would use the word to mean in in their uh, everyday legal practice. So when a judge talks about efficiency, usually what the judge means is getting the case resolved for less cost or getting the case to settlement faster, doing things faster or cheaper. When an economist talks about efficiency, what the economist is really saying is, have we organized the system in a way that allows us to maximize the outputs of the system at a minimum cost? Now, the tricky thing about efficiency is efficiency is always measured relative to some benchmark of what it is we're trying to achieve. And traditionally, what normative law and economics has done is taken the point of view that what a, the system is trying to achieve, what the legal system is trying to achieve, what laws are trying to do for society is to maximize the total amount of wealth in society. And so efficiency was defined as maximizing the total amount of wealth in society. Now, you can imagine this was immediately controversial. People would say, well, maybe we don't care about maximizing the total amount of wealth in society. Maybe we care about how that wealth is distributed in society. Or maybe we don't even care about wealth at all, but we care about other values that are harder to measure. And it's that disconnect, that, that potential disconnect between what the economic models that are being used to make prescriptions about the law should be X or the law should be Y but those prescriptions are based on the premise that our goal is to maximize the total amount of wealth in society. If that's not a goal that others agree with, then those prescriptions 
aren't the right prescriptions. And that's been a, a point of controversy throughout the history of law and economics, uh, because oftentimes there are normative claims made about the direction that the law should take. And the claim is, well, of course you should follow these claims. We want to improve efficiency. But efficiency, as defined by the person making the claim, uh, may not be the same thing as efficiency as defined by a judge or by political leaders or by others who are part of the debate about uh, what the law should do. For this reason, law and economics is sometimes referred to as a movement. Now, the term movement isn't generally something that at least I personally associate with intellectual or scholarly methodologies. I think of movements as something that reflects an attempt to create political or social change. And I think the law and economics movement, to some people's eyes, is exactly that. It's not merely about describing the world in a more precise way, but actually trying to change our legal and political culture in a particular direction uh, that not everybody might agree with. So you touched on the changes that the law and economics movement and law and economics theory has gone through over the years, but how would you describe the current landscape within the discipline? Is it very popular? So the landscape is is varied uh, as you look from field to field, certainly. There are some fields of law where law and economics, I think it's fair to say, is is dominant. It's It's the predominant Uh, mode of talking about that area of law, at least if you're talking to academics. Of course, when you're in the trenches as a practicing lawyer and your your job is to uh, convince judges and to convince other lawyers, you're not going to be uh, spouting a lot of uh, economic jargon as your your first first line of argument. But even in in practice settings, uh, there are some fields where the economic approach uh, has found its way into the law, and therefore it it even pervades legal discussions. And so some of those fields include tort law to some extent. There's the discussion of how do you create the the right amount of deterrence of wrongdoing without causing over-deterrence. You don't want potential injurers spending so much money on precautions that they're actually wasting money that would be better spent on other types of activities that are more beneficial than taking the the nth extra precaution to prevent some kind of, of injury. Contract law is another area where the academic discourse on the law is heavily, heavily influenced by, uh, by law and economics, which asks questions like, when is it actually economically efficient to breach a contract? That's not the kind of question that traditional uh, legal analysis would even pose. A contract is a promise, and people are supposed to keep their promises. How can we ever say that breaching a contract is a good idea? But the law and economics approach said, well, people should breach their contracts if it's economically efficient to do so. And the, the only question then is, well, is it ever efficient for a person to break a promise they made? And the answer, well, it turns out might be yes. And if you look at court cases, even if they don't use the language of economics, we, we all know as lawyers that sometimes courts will excuse parties who breach uh, their contracts. And what economic analysis of contract law asks is, are the courts 
allowing exceptions to the rule that you have to pay damages if you breach a contract, are courts allowing those exceptions in the right way? Are they allowing those exceptions in a way that actually improves economic efficiency? Again, as defined by the, by the analyst who's doing the economic analysis of that question. Other areas of law, uh, corporate law, certainly heavily, heavily influenced by uh, economic analysis of law. Uh, why? Well, because one of the questions that corporate law asks is, are we giving the managers and directors of corporations the right incentives to do what is in the interests of the shareholders of the corporation? That's, that's a question about incentives. And so economic analysis of law plays a big role in that area of law as well. And of course, I mentioned, I mentioned antitrust. And in fact, I encountered in my own experience as a teacher, students at different schools in their first year of law school complaining, oh my gosh, why is there so much law and economics in the curriculum here? Uh, why is this law school so obsessed with law and economics? And I've had to tell them, well, you know, I've heard that at other law schools too. I think it's just that there are certain, certain subjects uh, where there's a lot of law and economics to go around. And those subjects include first year subjects like, well, like torts and contracts. That, and so you tend to get law and economics in those, in those courses as a first-year law student. And speaking of that pushback that you're receiving from students, that moves into the next topic that we were hoping to talk about. That is, as an insider in law and economics, what would you describe as the weaknesses of the movement? So law and economics is certainly a, a powerful tool for studying the law I'm, I'm an economist myself. I love economics. But like any tool, it's going to have its limitations. And I think the biggest limitation perhaps is one that, uh, that we've talked about a little bit earlier, which is when economics tries to be normative, it can run into trouble because in order to make any normative claim, whether you're an economist or a philosopher or, or whoever you are, you have to start with some assumptions about you know, what makes something good as opposed to bad. And the weakness of economics as opposed to, for example, moral philosophy is that economics doesn't have any theory justifying what is good as opposed to what is bad. That's just not what economics is there to do. Economics is, is there to study how incentives affect behavior. And so when an economist says, look, you should change the law to increase liability for this or to decrease liability for that, there's always the question of, well, what are the assumptions that that economist is making or that lawyer is making when they make this economic efficiency argument saying that we can improve the law by doing X, Y, or Z? And what's important to recognize in that context is that economics itself can't justify the assumptions that economists make when they say, well, we want to improve economic efficiency. Well, maybe we do and maybe we don't, that, but that's not a question for economics. That's a question for political theory or for moral philosophy, uh, not for economics. And, and it, that's just a limitation of, of what economics is as a discipline. So one of the, the, the criticisms that's been made many times over the years of adherence to what you might call the law and economics movement is that they're willing to make normative claims about the law 
but they're not actually unpacking the assumptions they're making that underlie what counts as efficient versus inefficient. So I think that's one of the the main limitations of of economics. Now, there's plenty of other limitations one could could talk about as well. Uh, For example, on the theoretical side, economics relies on formal models, mathematical models that are designed to simplify the complex web of interactions and motivations that every person encounters in their life to try to simplify those things down to the essence of what are the most important factors to consider, and then to use that essential model, that basic mathematical model, to generate some predictions about how the law creates incentives and how those incentives change behavior. But of course, anytime you're simplifying reality, anytime you're creating a model out of reality, well, you're going to lose nuance. You're going to lose some aspects of, of reality. And of, and of course, any model, whether it's by an economist or a sociologist or a historian, whomever, uh, any model can be criticized if it simplifies the world in a way that people think actually doesn't do justice to what's really important about, about what's happening in the world. I guess I'll mention one other thing, which is on the empirical side for economics. I, I do a fair amount of empirical work uh, myself, and, and I'm by no means immune to these criticisms. On the empirical side, economic analysis of law, like any other empirical work by economists or demographers or, or sociologists or whomever, is subject to, to various criticisms. How good is your data? Uh, Does your data measure what you actually are setting out to measure? And perhaps the hardest set of questions when doing empirical work is, just because you see a correlation between two things in the data, does that mean that there's actually a cause and effect relationship in the data? Or are you mistaking what's merely a correlation for something that's actually a causal relationship? And of course, that concern about whether correlation really implies causation in any particular context is a really big concern for law and economics because what researchers of the law want to find out is, well, does this law cause some change in society? Or does this change in society cause the law to change? And as anybody who does empirical research can tell you, going from correlation to causation is one of the trickiest and most difficult things to do in a reliable way as a social scientist. And so I don't think this is a limitation that is special or unique to law and economics, but it's definitely an important limitation that anyone who is engaged in empirical research, including in law and economics, should be very mindful of. So you touch on some questions of efficiency as well as tensions between what law and economics is trying to achieve. It's also true that there's a variety of legal thoughts above and beyond just law and economics, and some of these schools of thought are in tension with one another. And perhaps nowhere is that debate more played out than in the context of law and economics and critical race theory or critical legal studies. I guess, but before diving into that debate, do you think you could describe 
generally thinking uh, what critical race theory is and what its relationship is to the law. So to me, critical race theory is an intellectual tradition. Also, in the same way that law and economics could be called a movement, critical race theory can be called a movement. It's a movement. It's an intellectual tradition within uh, the law that looks critically at the law through the lens of, of race. Uh, it, it begins with the premise that race is central to how we can understand uh, the law. And what I mean by a critical approach is not critical in the sense of, of, of negative, uh, of disparaging the law, but rather critical in the sense of, shall we say, dissecting the law, looking at the law and saying, we will have no illusions about the law. We will see through the pretenses and the pretexts of the law to uncover what's really going on in the law. And we will be willing to criticize even those aspects of the law that everyone else may be comfortable with, that everyone else may think are the best aspects of the law. We will hold nothing sacred, uh, I guess, is the way to summarize the critical approach to the law. Nothing is out of bounds. We will inquire and examine and dissect everything. And so building off of that response, where do we see the tension forming between law and economics and critical race theory? So in my view, it comes from the fact that both critical race theory and law and economics are not merely intellectual traditions. They're not merely ways of analyzing the law, but they're also movements. And critical race theory, to its credit, the practitioners of critical race theory are very open about the fact that critical race theory is a movement. And it brings with it certain commitments that at least most, maybe not all, but most scholars who identify as critical race theory scholars, that they embrace. That there are certain commitments, that there are certain goals, that there's even, shall we say, an agenda that critical race theory brings to the study of the law. It's a movement that has a place it wants to go. And that's not to say that there's some particular political platform that this movement endorses or pursues, but rather there is a commitment to this idea that race matters a lot to the law and that approaching the law in a way that treats race as a neutral topic or a topic to which the law can be blind is not the right way to approach the law. So there's that kind of a commitment that's brought by, by critical race theorists. Now, law and economics is also a movement. It's not inherently in tension with critical race theory. There's no core commitment in law and economics that contradicts any core commitment of critical race theory. But nonetheless, you're absolutely right that there's been a very clear and palpable tension uh, between the approaches that many law and economic scholars have taken to normative questions about the law and approaches that critical race scholars have taken to normative questions about the law. 
So we see both of these movements having strong and often opposing normative values. What's motivating the differences between these two movements? Well, I think part of it is that there is this, shall we say, ideological aspect to both movements. The University of Chicago law and economics tradition, going back to the 60s that I talked about earlier, the normative and prescriptive arguments that were made in the 60s and 70s coming out of the law and economics movement were not, shall we say, politically neutral. They would take sides on debates about things like antitrust law. Should there be more vigorous or less vigorous antitrust law enforcement? Should there be more vigorous enforcement of various uh, approaches to regulation, whether we're talking about uh, race discrimination or environmental regulation? Or should we rely more heavily on the market forces in the economy that might address the concerns that we have about behavior that the law wants to discourage? And the primary thrust of the arguments coming out of the uh, University of Chicago and law and economic scholarship in general at that time tended to favor a deregulation, more hands-off approach to, uh, to the government involvement in addressing concerns ranging from antitrust regulation to anti-discrimination regulation. Now, in contrast to that, I think it's fair to say that many critical race scholars would identify and would find themselves attracted to an approach to the law from a normative perspective that invites greater assertiveness by the government in society. One of the the important claims that's been made by critical legal scholars generally and, and critical race scholars in particular, I think one of the most important claims that has been made in various ways over the years is one cannot safely assume that there is anything neutral about the private ordering that occurs in society and that there is anything non-neutral about government intervention into the private ordering in society. Rather, this distinction between private ordering and government intervention is false, because whatever private ordering we see out in society is a function of the choices the government made in the past that allowed that set of relationships, that set of outcomes that made some people wealthier and some people less wealthy, government action or inaction made that possible. And so to say that private ordering is something that should be left alone is simply to misunderstand the nature of the question. Private ordering is never left alone. Government always has a hand in what is happening in society. And so if that's the the, the insight, if that's the point of view that a critical scholar is taking to the law, this idea that the law should take a hands-off approach to private ordering, that we should allow markets to operate independently of government policy is, is simply a misunderstanding of the nature of what government is called upon to do. And so I think it's inevitable that when there are two movements that are making different assumptions about how to ask questions about the law, then they're going to come into tension. And especially when the nature of the assumptions and importantly, the nature of the 
prescriptions that come out of the analysis have an ideological valence such that law and economics in the 60s and 70s was associated with conservative political movements and critical legal studies and critical race scholarship was associated with radical leftist critiques of the law. It's inevitable that there would be, there would be tension between, between those movements given that context. Now, let me say, I think it's an important caveat to offer, law and economics has evolved over time. And one might say it's, it's a little bit more of a, shall we say, big tent these days. A lot of the big insights in law and economics over the last, say, quarter century, 25 years or more, have been insights that are very different from the insights that came out of law and economics in the preceding 25 years. Perhaps the, 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 the biggest area of interest right now in law and economics is behavioral law and economics. And behavioral law and economics emphasizes the limitations of individual rationality and the limitations of market competition in solving the problems faced by society. This line of scholarship, this line of law and economics is by no means a, a conventionally market-favoring approach. It by no means has an obvious political valence, certainly not the traditional conservative political valence that some of the scholarship in law and economics from the 60s and 70s had. And so there's nothing inherently in tension between law and economics and critical race scholarship or, or any other field for that matter. But it certainly is the case that because they have this quality of being movements with prescriptive claims that have an ideological content to them, that those are going to clash sometimes. And that's certainly been the case historically, and, and it, it still is the case today. In regards to tension stemming from clashing ideologies, where do you see legal education and the perspective of students moving towards in the future? You know, I recall learning about the basic tenets of law and economics in my torts class as a 1L, and no opinion got greater pushback than Judge Posner in the Indiana Harbor Railroad case where there was a chemical spill in the Blue Island Rail Yard. And Judge Posner essentially said, well, this looks like an area that ought to be used for commerce and for railroads, and so we're not going to impose liability because it's much more efficient if the people in Blue Island left and didn't live in these areas because it's just not suitable for housing. There was uproar in the class. Are we seeing that students are less likely to adopt ideologies like law and economics and are more sympathetic to things like critical race theory? That's a good question. And I think the answer is not that students are necessarily moving away from one approach and moving toward the other approach. But I think in some ways, students are increasingly embracing both law and economics and critical race theory. And, and let me explain why and, and how that can be, uh, in, in my view. Both law and economics and critical race theory, although they involve different assumptions, they involve emphasis perhaps on different aspects of the law, different normative commitments, but they do have one thing fundamentally in common that I think makes them both 
incredibly important to the study of the law and really exciting for many students, certainly many of the students that I've talked to over the years. And that is both economic analysis of law and critical race theory focus on what's really going on here. How is the law really working? Neither of these approaches to the law cares about the labels that judges attach to one doctrine or another. Neither of these approaches to the law is willing to treat as sacrosanct something just because a judge said, well, it's in the Constitution. None of that. Rather, they're trying to say, look, forget about all the song and dance. We want to know when the rubber hits the road, whose ox is getting gored, who's being helped by the law and who's being hurt. And those are questions that law and economics cares about. And those are questions that critical race theory cares about. And I think law students, that's what they really want out of law school is, you know, we don't want a bunch of of formalities. We want to know how to make the law actually work for society. And that's a set of questions that law and economics is devoted to and that critical race theory is devoted to. So I think that, you know, there are areas of a very sharp difference and controversy between these two methodologies or movements. But that's an area, that's an aspect, I should say, that's an aspect of commonality between them that I think makes them both so valuable and attractive to students who want to have an impact as lawyers in the world. If I'm understanding what you're saying correctly, both movements want to know what's really happening with the law, what's really going on here. And that's more than just the words on the page of a judicial opinion. So while both these groups, though they have their different normative underpinnings and beliefs, are really searching for the ultimate justification behind the law or a legal truth. Is that correct? Yes, I think that's that's right. You can look at uh, a law and economics analysis of a tort case or a contract case, for example, and say, well, the judge, in her opinion, talks about, well, what are the duties owed from one party to the other party? But when we look at the effect that the law has on the, you know, you gave an example of of a case with a chemical spill and the question of should the chemical spill be cleaned up or should we simply not let people live in that area? The judicial opinions on that topic, at least the ones that aren't written by by Richard Posner, you know, one of the most committed adherents to law and economics in the history of the federal judiciary. But if we were to read opinions by by other judges, at least, they would probably talk about things like, well, the law says this, and these earlier cases give us these three elements that need to be proved by the plaintiff in order for the plaintiff to recover. And these are the legal duties owed by the parties. But as Judge Richard Posner's opinion, perhaps more revealingly discussed, At the end of the day, the question that's being answered by the courts in those cases is, okay, well, whose behavior has to change? Who's going to have to basically take their lumps and move on? And who's going to get something out of this case? And that's the approach that economic analysis takes. That's also the approach that that a critical race scholar would take to a case. You know, one of the most famous pieces of scholarship in, you know, in critical race theory 
looks at Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, what could be less controversial, less subject to criticism than Brown versus Board of Education? And yet here you have Derek Bell saying, well, wait a minute, what's really going on in this case? Was it really about equal protection? Well, okay, at one level it really was. It really was about the 14th Amendment's requirement that all persons have equal protection of the laws. Okay, fine. But the constitutional text, that text was ratified in 1868. Not a single word of the equal protection clause had changed from 1968 to 1954. But what the Supreme Court did, that changed from 1968 to 1954. Why was that? And the answers that he considers have a lot less to do with racial justice, frankly, than to do with the United States and the geopolitical situation created by the Cold War with the Soviet Union and factors such as that. So that's an example of not necessarily a law and economics approach, but of a critical race approach that says in a world in which whites have power and whites have privilege and advantage, why do we see nine white justices of the Supreme Court reaching this decision when in the past, in the past half century, in the past three quarters of a century, judges didn't reach that decision? What changed? What affected their behavior? Well, gosh, you know, that's a critical race question to say how in a world in which race exists as a as a, as a means of maintaining a hierarchy between different groups of individuals and society, how in such a world can the law actually do things that benefit those at the bottom of the hierarchy rather than the top? Well, when you ask the question that way, you, you start asking questions like, well, what motivated the judges to change their view on separate but equal? And that's a question of incentives. What incentives did the Supreme Court have to decide in favor of the plaintiffs in Brown versus Board of Education? And of course, once we're talking about incentives, we now see that maybe there isn't such a fundamental difference between an economist approach to studying the law and a critical race scholar's approach to studying the law. Sure, they might have very different views on how to define economic efficiency, but they both care a lot about the incentives that judges have when they decide a case in favor of the plaintiff or the defendant, in favor of the school children or the state board of education. Well, the way that the discussion has been going and the way that you phrase that understanding of incentives and the study of judicial or legislative motivations, it seems that law and economics and critical race theory aren't all that different sometimes and that you can actually be an advocate of both. So contrary to general understanding, critical race theory and law and economics aren't mutually exclusive with each other. That's right. And I think one of the things that we've seen in recent years is in some ways a convergence almost, a partial convergence over time of the approach being taken by many interested in law and economics and the approaches taken by many critical race scholars in that there are questions that both fields are very interested in. And it turns out that there is overlap in how to approach those questions as well. The, the best example of this is in empirical studies. 
critical race theory, as the name suggests, is a theoretical approach. It's saying we're going to look at the world and we're going to develop theories about how the world works. It's informed by our lived experience. It's not focused on gathering data. But over time, critical race theorists have recognized the value of using data to inform and support the theories that you're developing. And so I often refer to it as critical race scholarship or critical race studies rather than critical race theory, because there's an increasingly empirical component to what critical race scholars are doing. And the flip side of that is if you look at what economists and law and economics scholars are doing, they are focusing more and more on issues of race over time. Now, Economists and lawyers have have always examined issues of race. As I mentioned, going back to the 1960s, Gary Becker was writing about race discrimination in one of the earliest major works in the modern era on, on law and economics. But what's changed in recent years is a recognition by economists that, you know, frankly, is the product of the data proving the point that that critical race scholars have been making all along, the data telling them that, in fact, race is a centrally important factor in understanding the history of the United States and understanding the history of American law and understanding the inequalities and inequities that we observe in our society today. And therefore, when engaged in economic analysis of the law, one has to take race into account. One has to look at the ways in which inequality persists across generations and may be traced back to racial hierarchies that historically were explicit and, in fact, endorsed by the law and protected by the law, such that even today we can see those same hierarchies perpetuated, even though the law reads differently than it did 100 years ago or 200 years ago. So we're starting to see ways in which economists informed by the data are starting to think about empirical questions more like critical race scholars. And likewise, critical race scholars who see the need for theory to be informed by data are increasingly turning to empirical studies to supplement the more theoretical approaches that they have traditionally taken. So it seems that not only is law and economics and critical race theory not an inherent tension with one another, but in actuality, the two of them can complement each other quite well to create wonderful analysis and scholarship. That's that's right. I would love to see scholarship that continues to make this convergence happen. There's so much that the insights of critical race scholarship can bring to law and economics, especially empirical law and economics, which has already benefited from shifting the focus away from familiar questions and looking more at the role of race, status, identity, hierarchy in the law, the effect of history on the present, questions like that, that have really helped develop more insights from empirical and economic analysis. And likewise, I think empirical and economic analysis can inform and help broaden the scope of what critical race scholars can draw upon and speak to when 
they are examining the limitations or the possibilities for the law in their own normative framework for studying the law. And with that said, where do you think we'll see the scholarship of critical race theory or law and economics in about 10 years? Do you think the disciplines will continue at the same or perhaps even a faster rate down the road? I I do. I think that this is going to be driven by, well, frankly, something we talked about earlier, which is the interest in both of these fields, I think, is stronger than ever among students. And 10 years from now, the students of today are going to be the lawyers, are going to be the legal academics, the law professors. They're going to be in practice, in government. And, and what are people going to study? What are people going to write about? They're going to study and write about what they care about. And I think there's greater awareness than ever of the importance of race to our society, to the law. What does race mean? Where does it come from? How have we chosen to define it? And how does it affect the relations in society between individuals, between groups of people, between the government and society as a whole? You know, those are questions that people don't stop being interested in. And so in the future, I expect the next generation of scholars to be asking those questions and pursuing those questions even more than uh, current scholarship uh, today is. And I think that as law and economics has demonstrated in recent years that it doesn't have to reflect a particular movement or a particular ideology or a particular set of commitments. You can be a conservative or a liberal. You can be a progressive. You can be a radical and still take an economic approach to studying the law, to looking at data. I think recognizing that no matter what one's commitments are in terms of ideology, there's something to be gained from asking, how do the incentives in society affect the law? And how do the incentives created by the law affect society? And as lawyers and perhaps good members of society as a whole, there's an obligation for continued education and learning. And hopefully those will expand beyond the bounds of case law and judicial opinions and and branch into these more theoretical ideas or movement ideas like CRT or law and economics? Yes, I agree with that. And I guess I'll say this is one area in which I think law and economics can learn something from critical race theory. One of the things that, to me at least, is particularly intriguing and definitely distinctive about critical race scholarship is its willingness to speak in a different voice than traditional legal scholarship employs. First-person narrative, storytelling, even fictional allegory are methods that critical race scholars have used to get their message across. Law and economic scholarship, in contrast, tends to have, well, you know, a lot of math and a lot of tables and figures. And I think it's worth considering, you know, as you observe, Wouldn't it be so valuable to have these ideas from law and economics, from critical race theory, reach a broader audience of judges and lawyers? I think that's a great idea, but it's not going to happen with math and tables and figures. But it might happen with narratives, with storytelling, 
with anecdotes about individual experience or with hypothetical fictional scenarios that really bring to life a key idea. That's, I think, a more effective way to reach a broad audience. And that's something that I think is a page out of the critical race theory book that law and economics should, should take. Thank you, Professor Hubbard, for joining us today. We truly appreciate your time. Thank you. This, this was a great conversation. And now we turn to Deb and Professor Feingold. Hi, Professor Feingold. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Could you tell our listeners about the origins of critical race theory, how it was popularized, and when? Sure. And I so I think um, one place I'll begin is just to say that I don't consider myself uh, an authority on critical race theory or that I'm necessarily giving an authoritative account, but what I will try to do is draw from uh, critical race theorists and what they've written in conversations that they've had, many of which in print, some of which um, have been personal, uh, more one-on-ones in order to provide at least a um, partial provisional account of uh, CRT. Um, and so I, I think that's um, not just because I'm a lawyer and lawyers like to give uh, caveats before we say anything, but I also think it's particularly important um, in the context of critical race theory, for reasons that might become more apparent as we go. And so I think, so it's actually a really great question to ask about its origin, in part because CRT has a number of origin stories. Uh, and for uh, listeners, I would really encourage folks to look to some of what is in print uh, on origins. And I'm going to draw on some of that from folks like Kim Crenshaw and Sumi Cho and Devin Carbato and Mari Matsuda, who did a lot of the foundation laying and origin excavating, as you might say. One origin of CRT, and there's ways that you can really predate uh, what we see know as the formal formation of CRT or self-conscious, formal, self-conscious formation uh, of CRT now with antecedents that go back decades, if not centuries. Um, but, but I'll start in the... I guess the the 1980s, um, late 80s, I think is right, where you have law scholars, predominantly of color, who are, in a sense, uh, in conversation with one another uh, over a few um, concerns or contestations. One is just concerns with um, what is understood as a essentially the limitations to liberal reform as a vehicle to actually achieve achieve meaningful uh, racial progress or racial justice. And what I mean by liberal reform, at least in part, are uh, prevailing civil rights discourse and anti-discrimination law that understands racism and discrimination largely as isolated acts of bias and the problem to racial justice or racial equality as formal barriers to entry. And uh, so what that frame might lead one to is a sense um, that integration is the goal. And once you've achieved integration, then the civil rights uh, fight is over. Uh, And what that leaves out in part is that even when you achieve integration, which is far from a guarantee and um, something that certainly did not occur in the immediate aftermath of uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and that time period is that you're often confronting environments in where um, access to does not result in full participation in. 
And that was an observation that multiple folks were coming to who were finding themselves in often elite institutions that viewed themselves, that is the institutions as uh, liberal and progressive, but nonetheless, there was something, there was racial work or racial power that was operating within those institutions that undermined the, in many ways, just the modest uh, goal of equal participation. But then the other concern is the way in which a conception of racism or discrimination that really hinges on isolated acts and formal barriers of entry leads to a remedy that focuses on objectivity and colorblindness. Um, the question was, what's the origin? And so one of the origins is just a, a dissatisfaction with what is seen as the limitations of liberal reform and prevailing views of uh, anti-discrimination uh, law and how racism or discrimination operate. A second, and I think important part of the origin story uh, what Kim Crenshaw has referred to as frame misalignment, which refers to a divergence among allies with respect to, again, I'm invoking uh, Professor Crenshaw's words, the descriptive, normative, and political accounts of racial power. And one of the allies or the formations where a cleavage started to form was uh, CLS, or Critical Legal Studies, which was at the time, really the site within the Law Academy for progressive, critical folks to come together, um, do work, uh, and engage. And there was a critique from the scholars, most if not all of whom were of color, that something was happening in CLS or that CLS was failing to sufficiently attend to the way in which race was doing work. And racial, and racial power was performing uh, across spaces in a way that wasn't happening with respect to, for instance, class analyses. And I, I guess I go there in part because I think it's important to appreciate that CRT and critical race theory has often both been in contestation with views or ideologies that we might think of as on the right, but also many that we might think of as uh, on the left. And that is in part from the call from CRT to center race and for institutions to look internally um, to try to understand the way in which racial power operates, even in institutions that have an earnest desire to create equal learning and working environments. There is a very intentional community dimension to CRT. Um, and this, I think, speaks to the uh, avowedly political project that is critical race theory and is trying to create spaces that centers uh, individuals and theory that has for many years been on the margins of sites of knowledge production, which include uh, law school faculties uh, and legal institutions. Does CRT envision an end? I mean, is is there a time when we're going to say, you know, this political and academic project is over or will will that time never come? So it's a good question. I must say that I wish the broader political environment made it a harder question but one way, one helpful response might be is that there was often a turn to think of critical race theory not as a noun or as a unit that's filled with stuff like theories, values, norms, but a more of a verb uh, that is, in a sense, dynamically constituted as a function of real life contestation and oppression and and just fights on the ground. Initially, when CRT comes of age, Colorblindness is 
a dominant racial logic um, within constitutional jurisprudence, within anti-discrimination law, and just across American society. There are many ways in which colorblindness, which is to suggest that facial neutrality, not naming race or explicitly or consciously taking race into account, equates to uh, actual racial neutrality, CRT is responding to that. Uh, and so that's leading to work from folks like Neil Gotanda, who offers an, ent an entire account as to why colorblindness um, is uh, failing to, in all sorts of ways, just account for the myriad ways in which race continues to, to operate. And, and if anything, is a, a regressive approach to the limited gains that occurred through the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act and just formal equality more broadly. Around the time when President Obama became President Obama, there was a notable shift across public discourse that we were now in this land of post-race or post-racialism. And so CRT disagreeing or see critical race theorists, um, and I think quite uniformly disagreeing with the descriptive account that we are in a post-racial society in the sense that race no longer informs opportunity, experience, outcomes, found itself in a position needing to respond to that particular dominant racial logic. And then that brings us to where we are right now. Feels like an explicit intentional turn to a certain sort of xenophobic, ethnocentric white supremacy. And I don't mean to just use big terms, but I think those are actually terms that capture what we're seeing right now. CRT needs to respond to that uh, in a way that will require something different than responding to post-racialism or responding to uh, colorblindness. And then constantly thinking about how you engage in a project that is both sort of intellectual in the sense that it takes place among uh, law scholars, but is also meant to inform what happens on the ground in order to produce a better society. What would you say are some of the most commonly misunderstood things about CRT as a school of thought? So I guess the place where I will start uh, isn't necessarily a misconception, but I think a surprise or an aha sort of moment that students such as myself experience when we're exposed to CRT. And it's that I think for a lot of people, CRT provides both vocabulary and an analytical or conceptual hooker framework that just provides words to the world that we experience, that we see around us. And so I think there's just something a surprise as to how intuitive so many of the core CRT concepts are in ways that I think most law students, if you were not to present, and you could probably say the same for law and economics, if you were not to use the uh, title, uh, law and economics or critical race theory, but just expose students to some of the moves, some of the concepts. I think folks, wherever they might situate themselves ideologically, politically, would find the ideas intuitive and compelling. And so I think that's something that um, is probably underappreciated for CRT, in part because of the ways in which it, it, it travels through public discourse and often is really used as a foil in different political games. And obviously now that's occurring. You can also think about um, when um, critiques that were levied against 
President Obama tried to present him as this mentee of Derrick Bell, who is just steeped in critical race theory. And the reality is, and so uh, Inheni Lopez, who's a core critical race theorist, who people should know him and for all sorts of reasons, including some of the really important work he's doing now to bridge how we think about race and class. But he, like, in his written work, talks about how President Obama, in ways that are probably not surprising to many, is really quite moderate. Uh, in terms of a lot of his views in ways that are, in a sense, sort of centered to what folks would think of as uh, critical race theory. And, and so part of, or maybe all of that is just to say that I think that critical race theory is often postured as, in some sense, uh, radical. Um, when I actually think it's uh, many of the propositions are often modest and, and accessible um, but radical in the sense of a Sojourner Truth type of radical or Martin Luther King type of radical or Frederick Douglass type of radical in the sense of really resisting and trying to disrupt dominant or prevailing ways in which we as a society think about race and racism. Where oftentimes if you sort of break it down, folks will agree with you. Um, but if you just use uh, highly politicized terms, that might lead to a different sort of uh, contestation or, or confrontation. Recently, I was reading about Derek Bell's leave of conscience from teaching at Harvard Law School in 1991. Bell promised he would not return until the school hired a black female law professor. And to maintain tenure, faculty must return after a maximum of two years leave. But no black female law professor was hired, so Bell didn't come back, and he was fired for it. And then I noticed that last month, the Harvard Law Review republished Bell's piece on Brown v. Board. Is this a sign of CRT's growing influence? And if so, do you think the growing interest in CRT is a trend brought about by current social conditions or that its influence will continue to grow? So it's a, it's a, it's a good question. I think it's a, a hard question to really pin down um, what is um, CRT's influence. I think certainly critical race theory has had a tremendous influence, not just in law and in law schools and in legal scholarship, but in other uh, disciplines, education, public health, um, across the social sciences, there are um, scholars, there are students who are trading on a lot of the ideas that were either generated within critical race theory, or at least critical race theory helped to um, generate, and really spreading that across a, a range of disciplines. I, and a, a different question that one might ask is, why is critical race theory, and this is a question, that, again, that Professor Crenshaw, who I keep going um, back to in part, I think um, probably signals um, my implicit uh, sense or maybe explicit sense that she is one of the authoritative voices on the subject that really people should be um, turning to. Uh, but it's asking the question of sort of why does CRT happen in law as a formation, as this cognizable um, set of scholars in an intellectual movement, but not in other places. And the Bell incident. Uh, is actually a part of that story in laying the groundwork for particular contestations then by students at Harvard who were pushing back against uh, institutions and in a way beginning to do the work to develop the theories, including critiques of merit, that have now become really staple theories uh, within CRT. But again, in thinking about the influence of critical race theory, I think there's a couple ways in which we can see that. Um, one is just the way where terms like intersectionality now travel. 
intersectionality is a core CRT concept. The fact that it traveled so much has meant that some of the sort of core components of it get lost or um, distorted along the way, which is something that we should all always guard against. But nonetheless, it travels. And um, also just concern and attention to concepts like structural racism, even though it's not necessarily a prevailing um, way in which we as a society might think about racism or discrimination, is far more just a part of lay discourse than um, it certainly was 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, and as a, uh, an idea that really has, I think, um, political purchase uh, across uh, segments of society. And I think that does not happen, or at least not in the way that it has, um, without uh, critical race theory really laying the conceptual groundwork so that you can have not simply scholars, but just lay folks, activists, politicians who are mobilizing some of the, the theory to disrupt dominant norms that often are sort of lay logics that seek to either justify or legitimate um, uh, the status quo or, or racial inequality. Now that said, and I, I think critical race theory for various reasons remains marginal in the legal academy, marginalized in the legal academy. I think that to a large degree across society, we don't think of race or racism as highly fraught and complex social phenomena that require equally robust and rigorous theory to respond to it in a way that we take for granted with something like economics. And like, I'm never going to contest that economics or the way that markets interact is complex. Like clearly like folks who know about economics who have PhDs or otherwise are highly fluent in that topic should be on the Fed. Like, I would never say otherwise, um, but I think that there is an imbalance with respect to the sort of um, the way in which we um, assume the level of expertise or theory that goes into something like economics. It just we take that for granted. But with respect to race, it's like oh, I've lived in this society. I have a race. I can do race. Um, and I, uh, my one hope, at least from the current moment, is that there's a some reckoning with that uh, in the way in which we see that like higher education in this country certainly is not leaving many students with a, a rich vocabulary or set of frameworks or tools for thinking about race even at a 101 type level. Uh, and so, um, and CRT is certainly a place that just the notion of race as a social construct that is a term that travels a lot. And a lot of people will, like if I were to go to a law school, if I were to go to Chicago or zoom into Chicago and say, okay, raise your hand, your blue hand on the Zoom screen, if you think race is a social construct, I bet almost everyone gives me a blue hand. If I say, what does that mean? The hands are gonna drop really quickly. Eyes are gonna avert. And, all, and few people are going to engage because the move or the ability to say, yes, it's a cultural social contract is very different from being able to unpack what we mean. And so there, if we had time, I would get into Jerry Kong's notion of racial mechanics. But for now, I'll just point people to Jerry Kong's uh, framework of racial mechanics as a one way, or Ian Haney Lopez, another person I've referenced before, of 
offering ways to think about what we mean by race as a social construct. So I guess that almost similar to intersectionality is a way in which ideas that have been generated within critical race theory travel across society, but sometimes at a superficial level, um, where really what we need is to treat race, this, this phenomenon, this social force, um, this culturally contingent manifestation is something that is deserving of the intellectual rigor um, and attention as something like economics. Do you think law schools should require students to take a certain number of classes that engage with CRT and CLS literature? So my, my hope would be that all law, that no law student leaves law school without having been exposed and forced to engage in hard, sophisticated, deep conversations about the way in which race and racism operate um, in America. And that's not to say that that all has to happen from a particular perspective, but in many ways, it seems institutionally negligent to be producing individuals who will become, already are, but certainly will become a privileged few who will become the heads of nonprofits and corporations um, and leading law firms and politicians in a world in which racial stratification, in which racial hatred, in which racial stereotyping remains so prominent and yet not be forced to grapple with that in law school, that's problem, that is not training a holistic lawyer um, by any stretch of the imagination. Now, now, of course, thinking seriously and intelligently about race is not the only thing that should be happening in law school, but certainly something is missing. And, and I guess I'll just take a moment to point folks to a, a, a forthcoming article by Asad Rahim, who's a, a critical race theorist, really up-and-coming critical race theorist at Berkeley, who did really interest empirical work over a series of uh, interviews on uh, with both black and white students in law schools and in some different sort of graduate PhD programs. And from that, it was drew from that work the observation that within a lot of, within predominantly white uh, law schools and grad programs, students of color, black students in particular, who he was interviewing, hesitated to even talk about race. And now you should read the paper to really understand why, but for anyone who is simply interested in fostering a marketplace of ideas within a law school classroom in which we're forced, in which we are um, compelled to, invited to engage with perspectives that are different from our own, and when the diversity rationale, which is in many ways anchored to this notion that racial identity, among other dimensions of identity, will inform the perspectives we bring. If there's something about institutional environments that are keeping Black students or other students of color from engaging race, bringing it up, really uh, putting it on the table in the classroom, then whatever your priors, if, you're, if you are just a sort of a First Amendment fundamentalist, I don't mean to use that in any sort of pejorative way, but if just like, if all you want is the most ideas on the table all the time, then there's something that's happening within at least some elite law schools and PhD programs that is preventing racial analysis from entering the conversation. And in a sense, that takes us back to CLS, where there was concern from um, the soon-to-be individuals who would think of themselves as critical race theorists 
who were identifying that within critical legal studies, a decidedly left-leaning, progressive, perhaps radical space, race was not being attended to um, uh, in a way that was uh, satisfactory or necessary. Do you think there's room for ideological or political diversity within the field of CRT? So it's a, so it's a, so it's a really good question. I actually I think the question exposes, and this is a question that a lot of people would ask. But I think maybe exposes a misconception about a CRT, which so the question seems to presume that CR, CRT is a sort of a monolithic. Um, project in that there's actually no divergence with respect to um, values and norms and prescriptions when there's a lot of like, and so you could think of law and economics. For folks who are more familiar with law and economics, if anyone were to say, so do you think there's ever going to be a divergence or a multiplicity or heterogeneity of views within law and economics? to be like, oh, you clearly have not been reading law and economics because there are all sorts of fights that happen over here, like among folks who call themselves LNE uh, scholars. And the same is true for critical race theory. Now, there's a, there are certain grounding principles. Um, and so, and again, I don't need to list them, but some of the scholarship that is meant to um, capture and, and um, uh, self-describe CRT to the world offers uh, a series of um, sort of descri- um, descriptive presumptions or empirical presumptions about how the world works or normative commitments. And I would think that for a lot of those, and so one good example of an article is an article that's titled something along the lines of Critical Race Theory Meets Social Science by Dorita Rothmeyer at USC and Devin Carbato. And there they lay out some of the um, core sort of tenets of critical race theory. And they do so in part to invite a conversation as to why critical race, critical race theorists are, at least some are hesitant to forge an uh, a a more intense relationship with uh, empirical projects. And so my guess is that a lot of those tenants, so for instance, the idea that racial inequality or racism is endemic to American society. Now, that is a a core tenet of critical race theory. Um, It's one that is, I think, caricatured quite often. But if you take it seriously, then like clearly racial inequality is spread across society, across all sorts of metrics of well-being that uh, we take seriously. And then you might have fights over what racism means, but depending on how you describe racism, it's actually quite a modest proposition that racism is also endemic. You can have fights over what the word endemic means. And so my what I think is within sort of CRT, that is a pillar that, I mean, could potentially change when there is strong evidence that racial inequalities are largely eliminated or or don't exist. And so I think the answer to, one, it's important to recognize the variance of viewpoints within CRT. Uh, And if you read CRT scholarship, you will see this in it, like any other school of thought, um, there are going to be internal uh, contestations. That's not to say that there's going to be um, uh, discrepancies uh, or disparities among folks who um, see themselves as CRT and um, different sort of questions about boundary um, uh, line drawing and where, what, because anytime you're talking about what is CRT, you're inevitably suggesting what is not. 
And then there's questions about, well, who decides what is inside, what is outside? And I would imagine there are similar debates in law and economics about, well, what is inside law and economics? What is outside? What is on the, what is the fringe? And then there's questions, and then that ultimately um, reduces to questions of who has sort of power or authority to make those sorts of calls in, in different sorts of ways that um, might um, have distributional um, effects. Professor Hubbard told us earlier that he doesn't think critical race theory and law and econ are mutually exclusive and that they could work well with each other within scholarship. Do you agree with that? 100%. Um, I, I think that there are certainly cleavages. Um, so, with, so, for instance, um, in which uh, individuals who see themselves identify with law and economics and individuals who identify with critical race theory might have sort of underlying defaults or presumptions that do not overlap, but there's never there's never been a reason why a la- like that sort of divergence precludes um, collaboration. And CRT draws on a whole host of methodologies, including many that are empirical. And so there's nothing that necessarily prevents CRT from engaging with law and economics or law and economics from engaging with CRT. But I think it is certainly descriptively true that there has been at least certain degrees of balkanizing across those two formations, uh, which is likely the the, um, consequence of multiple things, including just human dynamics um, and sort of the politics that go into how we as uh, legal academics sort of fit ourselves into a broader taxonomy that is itself socially constructed of the different camps and fields and what it means or what it signals to be in one place um, or another. But just as a, I guess, an anecdote as to why I see no reason why there couldn't be collaboration is that when I was a student at UCLA and immersed in the critical race studies curriculum uh, under all of the critical race uh, uh, theorists there, I co-authored a a very basic empirical study and paper with the president and maybe even co-founder of the Law and Economic Society at UCLA. Uh, We were also friends, which helped, um, and we were not um, staked out in a particular um, way that uh, sort of um, created friction um, between us. And it's not to say that there was sort of, it was a seamless project in part because we did see the world differently in different ways. But I think it ultimately, the, there was value added from the collaboration. We engaged in a little bit of knowledge production that made it into a law review and some different talks and things. But you know, so, so the short answer, I think uh, Professor Hubbard is exactly right, though I think it is important to understand why those opportunities haven't always arisen. CRT and law and economics are often not seen in parallel in terms of the sort of rigor um, that the scholars doing that work um, bring to bring to bear. Uh, and I think that again just speaks to that's not that's not uh, meant to be anything. That's not meant to be commentary on sort of anyone's personal outlook, but I think in many ways does relate back to this notion that something like economics deserves hard, rigorous theory because economics is hard and something like race doesn't because it's, you know, it's just this thing that we've got and we know it. And so why would you even need to um, create a theory around it? And so I, part of the work of CRT or part of the um, 
the burden of CRT has been to just both just to deal with uh, that um, presumption and both um, implicit and at times quite explicit uh, disparity. Thank you so much, and thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it has uh, it has um, been a pleasure. I appreciate um, the conversation and the really uh, terrific questions. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Follow us on Twitter at UchiLRev and like us on Facebook. You can find more of our episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 4.